Now we come to the same time each week where we submit our minds to God's Word. It's a hard task. It requires concentration, but it is good. God's Word refines us, and God's Word opens our eyes to see the truth, and God, by His Spirit, makes us able to understand and receive these things. So before we open our Bibles to Mark 14, let's pray that the Spirit of God would be with us. Gracious God, thank you for these words of life. These words that tell about life, the life that Jesus Christ has won, that death has been conquered, and these words that bring life to our dead souls. Would you, by your Spirit, be with us, awaken us once again to understand these truths as we are naturally stuck in our natural understandings and cannot understand spiritual things. We need you. We come humbly and expectantly asking that your spirit would do much work here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Open with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Our passage this morning is Mark 14, verses 1 through 11. In this passage, there's a plot to kill Jesus. And then there's preparation for his burial. Let's hear now these words about death that are indeed words of life. Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of God. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. I don't think I'm a fun person to watch movies with. Because if, for example, the movie is called Finding Nemo, I don't let the scary, dangerous scenes, you know, where, where Nemo seems lost forever and where Marlin enters deep despair, I don't let those moments affect me emotionally. Why? Because it's called Finding Nemo. They're going to find Nemo. And he's going to be okay. I'm not that fun to watch movies with because I let the end influence how I see 
the present. I read the ending into every scene. In our passage today, we have to do that. We have to read the ending into the scene where we find ourselves. Jesus is, once again, the protagonist. This is Easter morning where we celebrate the resurrection. Let's not forget that as we look at these plots of death. Jesus is the main character of Mark's gospel, and we find him here in this scene at the beginning of a very precarious set of events. In fact, he will very soon die. He will be killed. So far in the book of Mark, you may remember, it's been about who is this Jesus? He's the main guy. But there's been misunderstanding throughout the whole book. Who is he really? What does it mean that he's the Messiah? And there's building controversy. Jesus is going head to head with the religious leaders, the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees. And he comes closer and closer to Jerusalem. And as he comes closer to Jerusalem, the tension mounts even higher because he's welcomed into the area as king with shouts of Hosanna. And then he judges the temple immediately by turning over the tables and purifying it. And so he heightens the tension with the religious leaders even further. And then he foretold of his coming when he will will come in complete judgment against the temple and the whole system, corrupt system there in Jerusalem. And he has told how he will come in judgment against the whole world and of his enthronement and all divine power in heaven. That's the way the plot has been going. And now we enter a very dark scene. As we look at this scene today, we're going to look at it in four parts. We'll look at the Passover. We'll look at the plot to kill. We'll look at the preparation for burial. And then lastly, the promise of proclamation. The Passover, the plot to kill, the preparation for burial, and the promise of proclamation. Let's look first at the Passover. Our passage opens with this phrase, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is important. Mark doesn't put extraneous details in his book, not often. As an introductory phrase, it is important. Because you'll know the Passover. You may remember it is a reference to the Old Testament event where the Israelites, as they were about to be freed from Egypt, were commanded to take the blood of a lamb, a spotless firstborn lamb, and paint the blood over their doorposts so that as the angel of death passed through, he would pass over those houses that are covered with blood. That's the context. That's what's in these people's minds as they come to the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover. And so we must read the impending death and the blood of the Lamb into the context where we find ourselves. Jesus goes to the place of his death and his blood is going to be spilled, the blood of the spotless eternal Lamb. But with death at hand, we have to ask ourselves, are things out of control? Is this going to be one of those movies with a terrible ending? Is God having to be quick on his feet to figure out a plan B now that the religious leaders are trying to kill Jesus? Well, even by reading the Gospel of Mark alone, you know that can't be the case. Because on multiple occasions, Jesus has told that he is going to be betrayed. He is going to be beaten. He is going to be killed. He says it in chapter 8, verse 31, in chapter 9, verse 31, in chapter 10, 33 through 34. 
In chapter 8, he says this, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. In Mark 9.31, it says, For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. And then in chapter 10, verse 33, it says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Now that the chief priests and the scribes are condemning him and delivering, oh, delivering him over for death, we cannot say this is a deviation from the plan. This is not an interruption of the plan. This has been the plan. God is completely sovereign over all of this and is in complete control. When Jesus was praying in the garden on the brink of being betrayed into the hands of the killers, Jesus prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you because he knows that as he goes to die, there will be glory. And he prayed that the father's will would be done even through the cup of suffering. And this is the father's will. The plan which the son has agreed to before time began, the plan that he has chosen to complete, the plan that he told the disciples three times before it happened, and it doesn't catch him off guard. In fact, in it, victory is about to be won against sin and death, against evil itself. We see in the book of Acts that Jesus was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, it says this in verse, chapter 2, verse 23, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Our God is in control. He knows what he's doing as Jesus is being plotted against. And then in Isaiah 53, verse 10, it says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And the will of the Lord did prosper in Jesus' hands upon that cross. Because what we find is that in the face of death, in suffering, that's where salvation comes. That's counterintuitive. The world thinks that salvation comes by victory and accumulation and winning. But we see in this story, salvation and victory come by way of suffering. That's the context of the Passover. The blood of the lamb will be spilled. Now we look at the plot to kill. Let's specifically look at what these leaders are plotting. And we see this in verses 1 and 2, but we also see it at the end. Did you notice that Judas is up to the same thing that the religious leaders are up to? So the plot to kill comes from verses 1 and 2 and 10 and 11. The chief priests and the scribes together compose this entity known as the Sanhedrin with religious and political power. It says in verse one, they are seeking. They are seeking. That means they're on the hunt. How to arrest him by stealth and kill him. This is an ugly plot. But this is an old plot line. They've been planning to do this since chapter three, verse six, where they go away and intend to destroy Jesus. And we see it again in chapter 11 and again in chapter 12. They've not been hiding their plot very well. What had Jesus done to them, though? 
Had he destroyed their prestige? Had he shamed them in public? Had he dismantled their kingdoms? Had he revealed their hypocrisy? Yes, all of this. How? By shining the light of truth into the darkness of their hearts and lives. He came face to face with their corruption and was not afraid to call them out with the truth. By showing that all these scriptures that they follow point not to their traditions, but to Jesus himself. That he is the one foretold. And there are only two kinds of responses when you're exposed like this, when you are brought down the way these religious leaders had been. Either there is a humbling and you collapse and you fall down and you say, Lord, forgive me. And you glorify Jesus and you admit your fault and you collapse into God's loving hands or your heart is hardened. And you turn yourself even more strongly against the Savior. And the chief priests and the scribes have chosen the hardening of their hearts. The darkness hates the light and wants to destroy it. And so here, so do the chief priests and the scribes and Judas seek the destruction of the light of the world. But you may have noticed in verse 2, they're about to chicken out again. Because they're not afraid of God as they should be. They're afraid of the people. They're afraid of what the crowd might think. And so they had planned to wait until after the feast. Let's wait till Passover is over. Let's wait till the Feast of Unleavened Bread is over. And then we can get him when nobody else is here. Until, jump to verse 10. Judas Iscariot, the insider, shows up. Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus to them. Jesus took this initiative and brought his teacher to them. He went to the chief priests. He's an insider. He's personally close to Jesus. He had great spiritual advantage and sat under his teaching regularly for three years. But that kind of proximity to Jesus isn't enough. The heart must be soft toward Jesus. The heart must respond with faith and love. Oh, the sad state of Judas's hard heart, seeking to destroy the Savior, set on building his own kingdom with 30 pieces of silver. Rather than bowing his knee to the Savior. Look in verse 11. It says, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. He sought That's the same word as the chief priests and scribes were seeking Jesus to arrest him. Judas so sought to betray Jesus. These two parties are in it together. And so we start to see there is again here, very technical term here, a sandwich structure in our text. It starts with the plot. It ends with the plot. And in between, there's this story that contrasts the plot on either end. And so as the chief priests and the scribes are seeking to arrest Jesus and kill him, so Judas at the end is seeking an opportunity to betray him. There are our bookends. Judas and the chief priests and the scribes are participating in premeditated betrayal and murder. They do it for selfish, short-term gain. Judas especially for money. And you know, every time in the book of Mark that money is mentioned, it's not every time, it's almost every time, money is mentioned or denarius is mentioned, it's always cast in a negative light because it's showing that there's a tension between worshiping money and worshiping God. And those who worship money do not submit fully to God. Or if they worship money, they don't submit at all to God. 
And Judas is the ultimate example of that. And now that Judas is in on it, the Sanhedrin is glad, we see in verse 11, and they become willing to go ahead and move up the date. All right, fine, let's do it. If Judas is in on it, we'll do it now. And so they do. With that insider help, they're trying to avoid the crowd's displeasure, and Judas then is able to take them to him at night when nobody else is around to try to avoid the crowd's displeasure. In this plot that opens and closes our passage today, we see two things. First of all, in the religious leaders, there is this obsession with what other people think. And in Judas, there is an obsession with accumulating wealth. And in both, there are hard hearts against Jesus. This forces us to examine our hearts. Are we plotters too? Or do we bow to Jesus? Do you bend to whatever people think? Do you serve man's approval? Do you worry more about what other people think than you do about what is right and what would please our God? Or do you serve wealth? Do you bow and bend to whatever will get you more money and more prestige? We're about to turn our attention to the preparation for burial in verses 3 through 9. And we're going to see here a nameless woman. She's named in other Gospels as Mary. But Mark intentionally leaves her without a name. To contrast, you have a named insider personally close to Jesus, Judas Iscariot, and you have the chief priests and the scribes, the religious leaders, the ones that you would expect to to see Jesus for who he is. And then you've got this nameless woman. And who gets it? It's the nameless woman. And so are we, the nameless ones, invited to see who Jesus is. And she neither cares what people think, nor does she care about accumulating money but she pours it all out for Jesus. So let's turn now to the preparation for burial. There's a change of scene here in verse 3. Mark's again inserting this story in the middle of another story. And so the scene here is at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. Simon the leper uh, is probably what he was known as, almost certainly not a leper anymore, um, healed perhaps by Jesus. And so they gather at his house with the disciples at Bethany on the other side of the Mount of Olives. Some think that this story actually happened a week earlier, and Mark put it here to contrast the heart of the chief priests and scribes and Judas. It's very possible because we know Jesus stopped in Bethany on his way up to Jerusalem. But it's sandwiched right here to contrast the depth of her devotion. Rather than seeking passionately and obsessively to dishonor him or to kill him, she is seeking passionately and obsessively to honor him. And it puts her actions also in the story of the Passover, the context of this death. There will be bloodshed and Jesus will die. And so as she comes and anoints him with this perfume, it has that theological effect of anointing Jesus's body for his burial, as Jesus himself says. And so what she does is she breaks an alabaster flask. Likely it has a long neck that was intended to be broken in order to be poured out. And historians estimate that this flask of pure nard, which is very costly, was 12 to 16 ounces. I'm not well acquainted with perfume bottles, but what I do know is that most of ours in this society are just an ounce or two or three. 12 to 16 ounces of this pure nard. This is an Indian oil. This is a perfume made out of a root of a plant from India. It's very costly, very expensive. 
The text tells us it's worth 300 denarii. That is 300 days worth of work. That is over a year's worth of of wages. And so she pours it out over his physical body. Pours it out on his human body, over his head, Mark tells us. This is a sweet act of extravagant devotion. Jesus calls it beautiful. You know, the next time the precious head of the Savior is mentioned, next chapter, he says, and they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down and mocking homage to him. There's a difference in how the head of the Savior is treated here versus those around her. And it may be that this woman alone understands that the way to life is through this suffering Savior. Her devotion is set on Jesus Christ alone, even as the dying Savior who is about to be killed as a criminal, even as he is a dying Savior, she knows that in him alone is life, and he alone deserves our most extraordinary pouring out of wealth and our deepest, most valuable recesses of our hearts. And loving him and serving him is more valuable than any religious or charitable act that we could engage in. Jesus says that she is anointing him for burial in verse 8. Because he's going to die. And he's going to be buried with haste. And we have no indication later that anybody else had prepared his body properly for burial. So here, his body is prepared. The last honor he receives from a nameless outsider. We'd expect the religious leaders and the inner circle disciples to be the ones to honor him, but they don't. The disciples haven't yet even understood what this woman understands. They don't understand the predictions that Jesus has made of his death. So we shouldn't be surprised that even the disciples miss the importance here. And they speak up against her. They say, what are you doing? That's tens of thousands of dollars worth of perfume that you're wasting on this man's head. And so what they've done is they've shown that they too are stuck in those two bookend errors. They care a lot about what people think. Because here at the time of the Passover, it was normal for people to make large offerings for the poor. And so they're saying, oh, that would have been such a great offering if we had sold that and given to the poor, what great alms could we have given? They care about doing the right religious thing and they want to look good. We also know that Judas was the one who was behind this. And so they're not just guilty of of trying to impress what other people think, but also they care about hoarding wealth dishonestly because Judas was the treasurer of the disciples. And we're told in John's gospel that it was Judas who said this. It was Judas who said he wanted to sell and give it to the poor, but we know that Judas does not care about the poor, but about his own kingdom. And so Jesus responds to these disciples says, don't bother her. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? And he's defending her because he's showing that there is a priority here. She is showing eternal devotion to him. And that is more important than any single act of charity. Jesus is not saying don't help the poor. He says the poor you will always have. You can and should care for them. Because I can tell you lots of other passages where Jesus encourages and commands care for the poor. Mark 10, 21, Matthew 5, 3, Matthew 6, 2 and 4, Matthew 6, 19, excuse me, Matthew 19, 21, Luke 6, in a couple places, Luke 21 and John 13, just to name a few. 
Jesus cares about helping the poor, but here he says there's something more important in his devotion to him. More foundational than doing good is bowing to Jesus. Because in him, the crucified Savior, our sins are placed on his shoulders and the wrath that we deserve for our sins is appeased and the power of sin and death is removed from us. And none of those things come from helping the poor. There will always be a chance to respond properly, but first you must see Jesus properly. And Jesus says, after all, I'm not going to be with them much longer. He says, I'm going away. If you knew that a loved one were dying, were dying this weekend, priorities change. Nothing else really matters. You can cancel all those other plans. You would cherish and pour out lavishly upon them gifts and time and words of love. Like this woman, you give your very best. Jesus says in verse 7, but you will not always have me. You know, even though the disciples preferred to sell the flask, to look good and accumulate some money, Jesus still lovingly offers himself for them. In fact, before he even dies, he offers them his body again. He says here in just a few verses in in chapter 14, he says this, take, this is my body, which is broken for you. Jesus is talking about his body twice in this chapter. That seems strange, but he's showing that in his body, where he dies, he offers life. Even to the dense, fickle disciples, he says, partake of this and live. Oh, that we too would respond to the body of Christ given for us as this valuable, or as this woman did, as a valuable treasure. That we would pour out our most valuable treasures that the world can offer with gratitude beyond words. That's the preparation for burial, an act of worship. Now we look at the promise of proclamation. Verse 9. Verse 9 is one of those flyover verses. You just keep reading and you get through it and you say, okay, let's keep going. But I think verse 9 is the most hopeful. Because although death is imminent and the murder plot is set in motion and they're about to betray and arrest and kill Jesus and the rest of the book is given to that, Jesus says there's going to be good news. In chapter 14, verse 9, it says, And truly I say to you, there's again Jesus' phrase that introduces a very important statement. He says, And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. What gospel? Gospel means good news. What good news is going to go out if he's going to die? What is there left to tell? First of all, Jesus knew precisely that this story was going to be recorded in Scripture. So he says, wherever the gospel is told, this will be told in memory of her. And that's why it's recorded here in our Bible. Because Jesus was the author of Scripture by his Spirit. He was the one who promised he was going to send the Spirit so that these very people who witnessed this might write down these stories accurately. And so Jesus was in control of all that. So you see his sovereignty again. But also, we can't forget last chapter. Because in the last chapter, Jesus promised he was going to come in judgment over the temple. And he promised he was going to come in judgment over the whole world. 
How is that going to be if he's going to die? No, there is good news. And it does include him coming in judgment. And his death itself is good news. Because when Jesus died, that is the only sacrifice that could ever pay for sin. All those, the blood of bulls and goats from the Old Testament, that never paid for sin. You can't even pay for the sin of somebody else because you're sinful. None of us can pay for one another's sins, but Jesus, who was perfect, who was God as man, he died perfectly. The, the spotless lamb to take away the sin of the world. And this gospel, this good news makes no sense to the world. Paul tells us, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is the news that saves. This is the truth that brings life. Paul also says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And he also says in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Jesus is about to die. And it's good news for those who are in Christ. Because he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. That's good news. But we do not have a dead Savior. Did you notice that as Jesus promised that he was going to be arrested and betrayed and killed, he said every single time after three days, I will rise. The good news comes in that Jesus died and that he rose. The resurrection is the good news. It is the gospel because Jesus did not remain dead. And at the very end of the the gospel of Mark, there is this the story that leaves you speechless. Mark chapter 15. Excuse me, Mark chapter 16. Verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. So here they come to prepare him for burial after the fact. And very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Listen to how the story ends in verse eight. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. In the face of a resurrection, What's the proper response? The good news is that the Savior is alive and that all who are in him will also likewise rise from the dead. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, if he were still in the tomb, all of this that we do 
is useless. Paul also says, if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. He would have been just another prophet or a religious guru who died unable to pay for the sins of anyone, even his own, were he not perfectly human and perfectly God. And there would be no power in his death to save anyone if he had remained in the grave because sin would have won. But because he was raised, so was the sacrifice for sin validated and the pouring out of righteousness upon believers confirmed and the power of God over death accomplished and salvation secured. And when Jesus was raised, he became the fountain of life for anyone who believes in him. In Christ shall all be made alive. You know, these words are important. The, the words that, that lead up to his death, Jesus was sought and betrayed and arrested and killed. These are the very words used of John the Baptist. He was sought and betrayed and arrested and killed. And he was the forerunner for Christ to, to prepare the way. Jesus is the true fulfillment of these Old Testament promises, but these are also the words used of those who follow Jesus. Betrayed and killed. Jesus just said in Mark chapter 13, be on your guard for they're going to deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake and they will bring you to trial and deliver you over. They will betray you and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. That's the promise for those who follow Jesus to be set against the world, for the world to hate us. But as as goes the head, Jesus Christ, so goes the body, his followers. They will seek to kill us. They will hate us as, as they hated Jesus. But just as Jesus rose from the dead, so will all of us who are in Christ rise from the dead. Because as goes the head, so goes the body. Those who are united to Christ in faith will suffer, yes, but they will also be resurrected in that same power of God and will ascend to glory and righteousness that is not their own. If grief is burdening you, if you are facing death, there is hope beyond the grave if you trust in Jesus. If sin seems to be killing you, or if it is killing you because you've not yet trusted Christ, let the resurrection power of Christ conquer that enemy for you by turning away from your own power and turning to Jesus. If guilt is weighing you down, let the power of life purge that power of death from your soul. If the brokenness of medical or relational sickness are plaguing you, see that life in Christ will heal all wounds. If the world seeks to take your life, you will be raised by Christ in glorious life when he comes again. If you're ready to be freed from this world and its demands to be rich, to be attractive, to be impressive, then turn your eyes upon Jesus. Find life in him. Though your body may die, you will rise with him in eternal life, both body and soul. And when we get there, I look forward to finding this unnamed woman and asking her the miracle that God had worked in her heart a love for a death-bound Savior when nobody else got it. How her heart was overflowing with love for and trust in her Savior in this moment. Indeed, there will only be tales of how wonderful our Savior is when we reach that happy place. Hers and millions more. 
And even for you and me, as seemingly insignificant, unnamed people, we too can find life in the Savior who was killed and raised. For he has conquered death once and for all, and there's no other name given by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ, the sufferer and the killed, but the raised and living one. Rest in him. Receive that offer of life. Let him be the one who paid for your sins. The one who appeased God's wrath for you. And trust that risen Savior anew today. Let's pray. Oh God, how unworthy. How unworthy we are to live because we have offended in so many ways that we cannot even count. We deserve death. You deserved life. But you took our death that we might take your life. So I pray that you would work in all of us a renewed trust in our risen Savior who has brought real salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.